Welcome back to the Theology and Apologetics podcast. We are continuing our series today on the subject of what does it mean to be human. We are on part three now, there'll probably be one more. Uh, If you haven't listened to the first two, please go back into the podcast feed and listen to those. In the last episode, we left off having looked at what um, evolution does to the view of humanity. Uh, Basically, it says that humans are just animals and we read some quotes from leading evolutionists um, to that effect. Uh, Evolutionary anthropology, this is what it does to human identity. It says that we are nothing but simply evolved animals. I'm not here to debate in these podcasts whether Darwinian evolution is the right view of humanity. We are simply contrasting, let's assume it is for the moment, what does that do for humanity? We're following it to its logical conclusion and today we're going to explore that a little further by kind of going down this dark road because I believe that evolutionary view of humanity does have some very unfortunate effects for us. Let me read to you a quote just to give you a flavour of what we're talking about here. This is by the evolutionist William Provine or Bill Provine, uh, the late Bill Provine, I believe he died very recently. He said this, let me summarise my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. No free will, see his biological determinism there, no meaning to life. We've looked at that a little bit in the last two podcasts, and it's this first thing where he says there's no foundation for ethics. We're going to explore this a little bit more, because removing a foundation for ethics has uh, some very serious consequences as this plays out in the public square. And I want to look at this now in regard to evolutionary theory and what it has um, done in history as it relates to what does it mean to be human. So let's look at the first issue. Okay, I talked um, on the last session about these typical kind of monkey to man progression charts. We were looking at one from the uh, National Geographic last time as we spoke through the different progressions, supposed progressions of humanity. Uh, I'm looking at one now from the Daily Mail. It's kind of similar. Uh, you can't see it, but it's it's the typical thing. But one thing you will notice if you've ever seen these monkey demand charts is that the more evolved these people become, it seems to be that the whiter they become. Okay, have you ever seen that? It'll start off with the with the ape, obviously, and gradually work its way through. And as it gets to the most evolved form, the Homo sapien, on the right hand side, this will usually be a Caucasian male. Now I'm aware, obviously, this might not be done intentionally. Uh, a lot of people will immediately respond. It's just obviously, it's nothing intentional. It's just to do with that's what apes, uh, you know, there is a color change. So why are we making a big deal of it? <laughs> Unfortunately, there is a very sad legacy that this is taken very seriously in the scientific community in the in the history of this world. Now let me just say something straight up, so there's no confusion. No one makes any mistakes here. I'm definitely not saying that people who believe in evolution are racist. That would be taking what I'm saying way too far. But I am saying that in the past, evolutionary theory has contributed to a number of the most racist ideologies in history, specifically by providing them with the scientific justification. Evolution did not create racism, but it has definitely contributed to it. Listen to Stephen Jay Gould, leading evolutionist uh, of modern era. He says, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, 
but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Okay, they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. This is because of the, we're going to explore this now, but it's because of these sorts of issues. So let's get with the timeline. 1859, the publication of Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, where he postulated his theory of natural selection. Now, he didn't really address uh, the issue of human evolution in this book. He did save that, however, for a later publication in 1871 called The Descent of Man. And it was in this book where he directly applied evolutionary theory to humans. And it's in this work that we begin to see the concept of a lower race and a higher race becoming popularised. In The Descent of Man, Darwin writes this. He says the sole object of this work is to consider, firstly, whether man, like every other species, is descended from some pre-existing form, and secondly, the manner of his development, and thirdly, the value of the differences between the so-called races of men. And it's that little sentence on the end there that I want us to really think about. The value of the differences between the so-called races of men. You see, this opens up the idea that these lower and higher races really have different values assigned to their lives. And we'll see this played out a little bit more later on. You see, Darwin applied his theory of natural selection, survival of the fittest, to humanity here. And he predicted that the outcome would be, another quote from Descent of Man, the civilised races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. The break between man and his nearest allies will be wider, instead of now between the Negro or the Australian Aboriginal and the gorilla. Okay, these are strong words. Most people don't realise that Darwin wrote things like this. It is not hard to see why the culture accepted these ideas. The idea, I'm talking about people being less evolved and, and more evolved, simply because they were being given scientific justification by the academic establishment. What Darwin started here in The Descent of Man, this was really just the beginning. It ended up becoming a, a very flourishing and new field known as eugenics, or, or has often been called social Darwinism. There was a man named Herbert Spencer. He was one of Darwin's most prominent disciples, and it was actually Spencer who coined the term survival of the fittest that we all associate with Darwin. And he was the first to really radically apply the principles of Darwinianism to human society. And with this, he, he's known as the father, the, he became known as the father of social Darwinism. Now, the concept is relatively straightforward. The whole of human society is seen as a product of evolution. And therefore, the stronger societies or nations will flourish, and the weaker people in society will be eliminated. That's basically, in a very <laughs> truncated form, that's what we refer to when we talk of social Darwinism. Now, because of this, Herbert Spencer, he opposed any sort of social support for the less fit in society, uh, such as benefits and medical care and education. This was all stemming from his belief in, in social Darwinism. He said this, a nation which fosters its good-for-nothings will end up becoming a good-for-nothing nation. You see, now, eugenics is a really a pseudo-scientific attempt to improve the physical and mental characteristics of the human race. And the way it does this is by in all honesty, effectively culling the unfit, or those that are deemed unfit, from the genetic pool. Interestingly, it was none other than Charles Darwin's cousin, Sir Francis Galton, who pioneered this movement, coining the term eugenics in 1883. And again, the concept of this is that race can be improved via hereditary. Now, this is firmly rooted in Darwinian soil. And, and this people know this. Let, let me read you a quote from the Encyclopedia of Bioethics. 
It says the emergence of interest in eugenics during that century had multiple roots. The most important was the theory of evolution. For Francis Galton's ideas on eugenics were a direct logical outgrowth of the scientific doctrine elaborated by his cousin, Charles Darwin. It was Darwin's cousin who came up with this idea and he was using and building upon the groundwork and the foundation that was set by Darwin. Now, unfortunately, this was not just theory. This was not just having it happening in the laboratories. This was being widely applied in the 19th and 20th century in America and Europe too. Many people were deemed unfit. Okay, now this included people with disabilities, people with epilepsy, people who were just too poor, people who were blind and deaf, those with certain diseases, and in many cases just criminals or drug addicts were considered unfit and therefore they needed to be um, removed from the genetic pool. The way they did this is they were subject to forced sterilization so their DNA could not be propagated to the next generation and in many cases forced euthanasia. Now I believe we need to think long and hard about these things because many of the same arguments we see are behind the push for euthanasia that is becoming very popular again today. We see it in many parts of Europe now, push for euthanasia and also for abortion, particularly sex-selective abortion. These are the same issues. It really seems to be a re-emergence of social Darwinism and eugenics. However, we don't call it that anymore and we'll explain why right now. This movement, eugenics, was picked up by Nazi Germany and this is why it has such a stigma attached to it. You see, the Darwinian revolution spread rapidly throughout Germany, and this was you know, in part to people like uh, Ernst Haeckel. Haeckel was a, a zoology professor, one of Darwin's most devoted disciples, um, very well known for his recapitulation theory, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, um, and now very well known for his doctored, his fraudulent embryo drawings. Uh, and he, he was responsible for really spreading the Darwinian revolution throughout Germany at this time. He said this in one of his works. He said he considered the woolly-haired Negroes to be incapable of a true inner culture and of a higher mental development. He went on to say that these lower races are psychologically nearer to the mammals, apes and dogs, than to civilised Europeans. We must therefore assign a totally different value to their lives. You see, this is what was happening in Germany at this time. The philosophical foundation laid by Darwin, taken up to, into social Darwinism, was now being applied even further by the zoology professors, by Ernst Haeckel, by the scientific establishment, to the point that where they were identifying the Negroes and the Aboriginals to be less evolved, they have no capacity for mental development, they were lower races, nearer to the apes and the dogs than they were to the white Europeans. And, it said, and he then ends by saying, they have a different value to their lives. You see how radically and fundamentally different this is to the view of Christianity that we're going to look at next time, where everyone is created equal in the image of God. You can, we look two very, very contrasting worldviews here, and both of them have a lot to say about what it means to be human. Stephen Jay Gould wrote this about Ernst Haeckel. He said his greatest influence was ultimately in another direction. National Socialism, that's Nazism. His evolutionary racism, his call to the German people for racial purity and unflinching devotion to his belief that harsh, inexorable laws of evolution ruled human civilization and nature alike. 
conferring upon favoured races the right to dominate others, all contributed to the rise of Nazism. That's Ernst Haeckel, and obviously we know how that ended, the master race, the elimination of over six million people deemed unfit. Now you might be thinking, this is heavy stuff, you might be thinking, I just listened to this wanting to know what it means to be human. What has this got to do with human identity? Why am I listening to stories about Germany in the war period? You see, the point I'm trying to emphasise is that if your starting point is wrong, you end up very far from the truth. Okay, If your starting point is wrong, by the end, you can go very, very wrong. Okay, And this is my point. We're looking at really two contrasting worldviews here. We're looking at Christianity that believes uh, mankind is created in the image of God, and we've been looking at uh, evolutionary naturalism, that man is nothing but a highly evolved animal. And we've seen that some people and some ideologies in history have taken this to the logical conclusion, conclusions using social Darwinism, and it's ended in some very tragic results. Let me read you the words of Viktor Frankl. He was a leading neurologist and a psychiatrist. Now, he himself was in the Holocaust. He, he went to three different concentration camps and he lost all but one member of his family to that evil. He himself survived. And he wrote this shortly after. He says, listen to this first, first sentence. If we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. See, if we are telling people that they are what they're not, then they might act <laughs> in the same way. He goes on, when we present man as an automaton of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drivers and reactions, as a mere product of instinct, hereditary and environment, we feed the nihilism to which modern man is in any case prone. He continues, I became acquainted with this last stage of that corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were ultimately the consequence of the theory that man is nothing more than the product of hereditary and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. It's a very powerful quote there, very insightful. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing more than the product of hereditary and environment. And he says that these things were ultimately not prepared by the Defence Department. The groundwork was laid for them in the science classroom and in the philosophy classroom. We need to think long and hard about what groundwork is being prepared in our scientific classrooms and our philosophy classrooms today because it seems to be very, very similar. Ideas do have consequences. Actions are built upon our beliefs. You see, this was the philosophical foundation at the time of the war, of Nazism and Nazi Germany. It was social Darwinism. It was the Darwinian revolution had taken place at this, you know, obviously a little bit earlier than this, but by this time it had played out and kind of creeped its way into all of society at this time. And the issue is, like we've always said, what does it mean to be human? You see, we've looked at the naturalistic evolutionary view. And again, I just emphasize, I'm not saying that just believing in evolution means that you somehow agree with these things. That would be ridiculous. But we can't deny there is a, a logical link between this and that. The, the two are connected, as we've seen played out in history. Now, next time, we're going to turn our attention to the biblical view of mankind, which I believe is the correct view. And we will be um, 
examining that in a little bit more depth. So that will be part four and we'll end our series on what does it mean to be human by looking at the biblical view. I'd just like to thank you for taking the time to listen. Uh, please subscribe to the, the feed on iTunes and leave us a review if you like the podcasts. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.